0: Father, it is with complete, absolute, utter, and total dependence on you that we even attempt to dig into your word. Only your spirit can teach us. Only your spirit can reveal the truth. Only your spirit can magnify out of your words or expose to us the depth and the meaning and the truth that lies within these texts. And because we can't do it on our own, we must be completely dependent on you. And in any way in which I have in my heart and my mind, hidden away in some crevice of my heart, this pride or arrogance that makes me think I can do this, kill it swiftly. Do your work, Lord. The work that only you can do in our hearts and in our minds. Convict us, change us, challenge us, rebuke us, encourage us, strengthen us, and show us your love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last week, we, in in verses 7 and 8 we saw God set a standard in the church for male leadership and male authority in the church, which is to be expressed not only in the fact that men lead the church in its corporate worship, but that those very men example godliness in their lives so that their leading and their prayers are effective. So the benefit is to the church when men lead and those men are godly. And we talked about that last week, how what a kind of impact that has on prayer, and that those very men don't just get their prayers automatically answered because they're holy men, but that holy men pray God's will, and God always answers his will with yes. So that is like fundamentally important to the church that we understand what a man's role or what male roles are in the church and what female roles are in the church. And again, this is the larger context of 1 Timothy um, is instructions for how the church should function, specifically that the church would have sound doctrine. And then in chapter 2, what Paul is doing is he is taking this idea of sound doctrine and he's giving us literal, actual uh, examples of what sound doctrine looks like in the church. Sound doctrine looks like the church praying uh, in verses 1 and 2, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It looks like uh, sound doctrine is revealed in the gospel in verses 3 through 6, the gospel being preeminent in our worship. And then in verses uh, 7 and 8, we see that sound doctrine is established in the order and structure and authority and, uh, of the church with male leadership and prayer and then we get to verses 9 through 15 where then Paul shifts to the roles of females in the church and again the whole purpose here is for order that reveals sound doctrine so today Paul shifts into these roles of women in the church and before he specifically addresses what what roles a woman is not to have in the church First, he addresses something that is fundamentally important to her ability to fill her role in the church. And that fundamentally important thing is not just what she wears or how she dresses. That fundamentally important thing is ultimately the condition of her heart. So the big question in the church that Paul answers in this text is, What is a woman's role in the church? And Paul will answer that in verses 9 through 15. Uh, But keep in mind, this is not exhaustive. This is not the only place in Scripture where we see what women should or shouldn't do. So this is not the totality of of female roles in the church. Uh, This is just specifically what Paul was dealing with as he writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and what the church in Ephesus was facing. You'll see why these words are important based on the historical context of the Ephesian church. And there are other commands in Scripture, you know, where we see these women playing these different roles, what they can do, what they shouldn't do, and what they should or shouldn't do in certain contexts in the church, and so on and so forth. But before we dig into what God commands of women, we first have to address one foundational truth upon which a woman's role stands. The entire purpose of Paul writing this letter to the church is not, is not so he's not talking. This, this little section here is not intended to suppress women, nor is it intended to embolden men to harsh dominance. Both of those would be uh, what I'd call overcorrections. Okay, swinging too far one way. And as we walk through text, we'll see what that women's, what that what a woman's role really is, and that suppression is not a part of that role. The distinct roles for men and women are intended, so here's the foundational truth, distinct roles for men and women in the church are intended to produce order in the church. So it's for order, and it's for more than order, but order is the means by which we get to the thing that it's really intended for male roles and female roles in the church are ultimately meant to magnify the glory of God and how they magnify the glory of God is by everybody filling specific roles and the roles that they're called to and certain roles are reserved for men and certain roles are reserved for women and if we all know our roles, we're all filled with the Spirit and we all know what we're called to do then we'll all start filling the appropriate roles in our appropriate church and there will be order and structure in the church because God doesn't like it the other way, which is why he gives us these commands. Because if we're out of order and disordered and dysfunctional and not united through people filling inappropriate roles, then what happens is the church can't worship appropriately. And we've talked about this before. God loves that our heart is in the right place when we worship. Our hearts matter but so does worshiping God according to his word. The way we're commanded to worship is just as important as your heart or desire to worship or so so your intentions don't Counteract doing worship wrong. It's still wrong, and your heart being in the right place is great. But your heart can't fully be in the right place if you're out of order, or if we're out of order. So, Paul writes in First Corinthians fourteen thirty three, and this is in the context of women's roles in the church. He writes, "For God is not a god of confusion, but of peace." So he's talking about what women can't do there in 1 Corinthians 14 and he's saying the reason this is important is because when you don't do it this way when the women don't fill this particular role or or they do do this particular thing uh, what happens is confusion in the church and instead of having peace we're out of order. And then what Paul also says is then unbelievers walk in the church and go you guys are crazy, what are you doing? And then we don't display the gospel to unbelievers as much as we don't clearly communicate the sound doctrine of the gospel through male and female roles so when men and women act out of order it creates confusion and disorder and it nullifies the peace in the church and like I, i can attest to this i'm sure many of you can as well we can attest to this like in my own personal like pastoral experience that when people act out of order from their roles there's like no peace there's just chaos And confusion and frustration and there's pain and there's suffering and there's hardship. And and this is produced from the sin of people attempting to fill roles they are never commanded or expected to fill or called to fill. So imagine living in a home where both mom and dad cannot clearly determine or express who's the leader in the family. What do you think that's going to do to the family? The wife battles her husband for leadership and authority. So the husband does one of two things. He cowers... He cowers to her dominance, throwing off the appropriate order of the home, leading to sin in the family that comes from weak male leadership and authority. That's one correction. Those two type of people tend to stay married because even though they're out of order, there's at least some structure. There's a leader and a follower. There's an An authority and a submission. It's out of order, but it gets people by, even though it's wrong. The other thing that might happen is the husband, in response to his wife's desire to take authority from him, which, by the way, is the curse that God told Eve was going to be her curse in Genesis chapter 3. That she will have a desire for her husband. That's her desire to steal his role, to take his authority. That's the product of the fall. When God created Adam and Eve, he had Adam in one role and Eve in another role. And what he said, he calls Eve Adam's helper, help meet. And so the moment sin enters, God says that structure, that order that you two are just perfectly living in is going to be frustrating now. And so the other response from the husband could be that the husband tries to overpower the wife. The husband's like, I'm not going to let this woman lead." This woman's like, I'm going to leave. And it creates tension. And there's a power struggle that harms their marriage. And it confuses the children, creating chaos in the home, usually revealed in misbehavior in the children. And in most cases, in my experience, so I don't know about this statistically, in my experience, those two power couples fighting for authority in the home, divorce. Almost always. And again, that's just my experience. That same principle applies in the church. Order is required, which means someone has to lead and someone has to submit. That's the only way to make progress and it's the only way to have peace and unity instead of chaos and division. So in verse 9, Paul writes to the women, or to Timothy about the women. He says, "'Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel,' with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Okay. Historical context here is massively important. Okay, like the cultural understanding and the historical understanding of what's going on in this verse is super important. First century culture was a culture of worship. Whether you're a believer or not, it was a culture of worship. In fact, I mean, we would all agree probably that every culture is a culture of worship. Everybody worships something, even if they say they worship nothing. They worship their own authority, their own mind, their own humanity, right? Anyone who says there is no God or we can't know if there's a God. If they're atheist or agnostic, they're still worshiping an idea. They still are ruled by a certain perspective, even if it's their own. And they make themselves a God. And so we're all really... Created to follow and to worship and to submit to some degree. And in the first century church, it was a culture of worship. All religions had their own way to worship. And the most prominent form of worship in that first century, in that area specifically, the most prominent form of worship in that culture was centered around sexuality. In Corinth, Aphrodite was worshipped in the form of rampant prostitution. In Ephesus, where Timothy is, the letter, this letter that Paul's writing to Timothy is going to Ephesus, and in Ephesus, women occupied a very prominent role in the worship of the goddess Diana, which took place in the temple of Artemis, which, by the way, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So, keep in mind that So first of all, there's just this sexuality to worship. That's the cultural norm, right? And it was rampant, and it was extremely perverted, and it was expressed in a variety of ways that I'm not going to say right now because children are here. So it was... Probably, if you've ever seen like, you know, movies or TV shows with like the Romans from the first century and there's a lot of that stuff going on, it's probably a lot worse than what you have seen or can imagine. It was viral. And keep in mind that these believers in Ephesus spent most of their life as unbelievers. Paul wrote this letter 30 years after Jesus died. Paul visited Ephesus 10 years ago from when he wrote this letter. In about the early 50s, about, we think it's about the spring of A.D. 52, which is approximately, you know, less than 20 years after Jesus died. And the gospel had not spread everywhere. And Paul was the one bringing, Paul and the other apostles were bringing the gospel to these places. So the Ephesian believers, I mean, most of them probably didn't hear about Jesus till 20 years after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended to heaven. And so, There, at most, you've got believers in this church receiving this letter who have been believers for 10 years. But a majority of them have spent their life as unbelievers in this culture of rampant sexuality as a form of worship. I mean, these are not 21st century believers who were raised in Christian homes and taught New Testament truths in Sunday school and sang songs like, Father Abraham, you know, like they didn't have that kind of life. Like they were raised in a completely different culture of worship than what we understand. And that's what Paul is battling. So there's an even greater pull for them towards sexuality in worship because it is what, they're, what they either practiced themselves, so these were either converts from a different religion, which, where they would have definitely practiced some of these uh, forms of worship that were perverted, uh, or if they didn't practice it themselves, they're at least accustomed to it in their culture, making the sexualization of women a common and acceptable reality and practice in the first century, especially around Ephesus. And if you look at Ephesus on the map, if you like flip to the back of your Bible and you look at the map of like Paul's missionary journeys, you find Ephesus, you can see that a lot of... You see all these lines on the map of where Paul went, and what you'll notice is most of those lines always intersect through Ephesus. It was a major like, intersection point for a lot of travel and trade. And so this is normal that in Ephesus you would have kind of an epicenter of worship. As people travel, they want to stop and worship and they pull up into Ephesus like, hey, we're in Ephesus. You guys got a, a temple where we can worship Diana? Oh yeah, the temple of Artemis. <gasps> you guys have the temple of Artemis? And they go there and they worship in their perverted forms and that was common and it was rampant. And Ephesus was a pretty big town full of this. And then you've got these believers who live in this town and that's the culture they're facing. Like in our culture, sexuality is very prominent. We know that. You can see it everywhere. And, or, or however, uh, we are not nearly in our culture as bold about it or as willing to accept it publicly on display as they were in the first century so we can't really grasp the way in which this was their culture existed in this these forms of worship back then um, if we try to relate it to the way our culture exists in terms of sexuality and in terms of worship and so all of this religious sexualization is sin right And because it's a perversion of God's intention for human sexuality that is meant to be practiced, experienced, and enjoyed only between a husband and wife within the privacy of their marriage. So, we must understand what Paul is up against in order to understand how we are to apply these truths in our culture and in our modern day churches. Paul says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So, respectable apparel could be one thing in one culture and another thing in a different culture but regardless of what is acceptable in one culture the point is that when women that, that women should dress themselves in a way that their immediate culture would consider respectable now if you for a moment just if you're a woman and you're thinking why is it why why is he picking on women and how they dress biology it's really that simple. Like, does this apply to men too? Absolutely. I mean, if I came in here and started preaching with my shirt off, you'd be like, "What is going on in this church? That's weird and that is not appropriate nor is it respectable apparel." That would be inappropriate and it, this text would be applicable to me even though Paul's speaking directly to how women dress. But women should dress themselves in a way that their immediate culture considers respectable. I'll give you an extreme example just for clarity. And, I, and I'm, giving ex, I'm going to give you a couple extreme examples today. And the reason I give extreme examples is because if I don't give you an extreme example, and I give you an example that's kind of on the border of is this is appropriate or not appropriate, then I fear that in your mind we will have created a new rule for this church. Like if I say, women can't wear jeans or whatever i don't believe that but uh then you would be like well women can't wear jeans in this church and i don't want to set some sort of standard by just giving you an example that i don't necessarily believe is a rule or not so to avoid rules i'm going to be extreme okay so here's an extreme example for clarity if a woman walked into this church today and she was wearing nothing but a bathing suit there wouldn't be one person in this room that would call that respectable apparel Culturally, that would be vastly inappropriate. Okay? And biblically, it would be inappropriate. Yet in some cultures, like mostly tribal communities, women don't wear any clothes at all. And to them, that would be respectable to their culture. Now I'm saying to their culture. I'm not saying if they were believers, that would be respectable. I'm saying in their culture, that is respectable to them. So culture does have a role to play in this, okay? However, and this is really important that you hear this, and we'll talk more about it next week. We need to be careful that we never veer into using cultural norms as our determination of what God demands from us. Because if we do then we're able to twist God's word into whatever we want it to say based on what our culture deems as acceptable. And a great example of that we'll see next week when we get to verses 11 through 15. Because the the most common and accepted argument by people who don't believe what we believe about verses 11 through 15, the most common argument against what I'll teach you next week is that That was a cultural norm then, it's not a cultural norm now, so we don't have to obey it anymore. That is terrible exegesis, poor exposition, bad teaching, and it is a false doctrine. We still have to adhere to the word of God. I'm trying to make you aware of the culture that Paul is writing to so you can understand what he's saying. So we can understand, when we look at things like braided hair, what does that even mean to the first century church and what does it mean to us? And exposition or the, the exegesis, which is the like the art and science of biblical interpretation, that process requires that we understand how the readers would have interpreted the the, the, the author's words, right? Our objective is to get to the meaning of the text, and we can only get the meaning if we know what Paul meant and what the Ephesians understood. And in order to understand those things, we need to understand the culture in which they live so we can grasp the truth or the meaning of the text and then find the principle in that text and live it in our culture. So, what is respectable apparel Paul says it is modesty and self-control now remember the entire purpose here is to promote worship that is within the order of God's design and God's design for corporate worship is that he alone is the center of attention he alone is the center of attention and and this is such a prominent thought in my mind that I even think about like the announcement I made this morning where I thanked all of you. Thank you for showing up and helping with uh, work day, or uh, you know, cleaning the church yesterday. And thank you to those who regularly and weekly clean the church on Saturdays. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. I am grateful to you. I am appreciative of you. And I, am, uh, and I thank you. However, when Paul is thankful for the church, he says things like, I'm thankful to God for you. Because it's not about you. I don't want you to get an elevated thought of yourself or think, yeah, I'm pretty good. I do clean the church every week. Or I did show up yesterday and clean it. You know, whatever. I, like, and you might think, well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't think that way. Well, great. And I don't want to give you any leeway to possibly think that way by thanking you and t- to the point where you're being flattered, right? Flattery is sin. So if I flatter you, I'm sinning. And it's going to cause you to sin. So, not try to flatter, I'm grateful for you, I'm thankful to you, I appreciate you, but I thank God for you. And the reason I say that is because, as I said that this morning during during the announcements, I almost stopped and corrected myself to say, wait a minute, I'm thankful to God for you. Because it is vastly important that we elevate above ourselves, not not us, but God, to, to magnify Jesus and his gospel that's why we're here not to magnify each other it isn't here to to exalt one another we're here to exalt Christ and when we do it together high tide raises all ships right so as we worship him together we all rise in joy and satisfaction with him together and so as much as there is element, there are elements within the church that are horizontal, there are elements in the church services that are also vertical, and it's very important. It, it matters to me. I think about the way we do Sunday morning church service, that I don't want to be making horizontal to vertical shifts so fast that you guys can't tell what we're doing, Right? That's why everything that is interactive among each other happens at the beginning of the service. And that's why we do a song and then we interact. And I interact with you and you interact with me and then we shake hands and we pray together and it's all this horizontal relationship. And then the moment we move into the next the set of songs, we shift from horizontal to vertical. And we worship him in three songs and then we worship him in the word. And the whole time, our attention is to be vertical. And the reason that Paul talks about modesty and self-control and women wearing respectable apparel is so that he alone is exalted, so that our attention is vertical. And if modesty isn't achieved in the church, we'll be looking up and our attention is drawn horizontally to one another. And I mean, any woman, and I've heard this argument many times, if a woman dresses immodestly... And someone tells her you shouldn't dress them modestly because it causes men to sin. I have heard women say that's their problem. That's on them. They're the one with the sin issue. Why is that on me? Because God puts it on you. As much as their sin is their problem, so is your modesty on you. There's two involved here, okay? There's two at work. There's the woman's role and the man's role, and yes, absolutely, that is the man's problem, but it is on you to dress modestly and have self-control. And so we, do, we, we care about that because our entire objective on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and Thursday night and, night and Friday night and Friday morning and whatever else we do is intended to worship Jesus, and we don't want to be, with, we don't want to be distracted from that. We don't want to be distracted from him. We're here to exalt the gospel Not feminine beauty. And we'll talk about what feminine beauty is in a minute. So, modesty is simply adorning yourself in a manner that removes attention from yourself. Our English word modesty comes from a Latin word that means keeping within measure. Meaning modesty is to wisely measure what does and does not appeal to others and keeping oneself within the realm of not intentionally drawing physical and sexual attraction from others because it distracts. And if your immediate response to this as a woman, if you're a woman and you're thinking, oh, okay, so women are just supposed to be frumpy and ugly and gross and unattractive just because men are disgustingly sexual. Okay, first of all, I hope you don't have that kind of attitude I just showed, right? But if you're thinking any along those lines at all, that's not what's being taught here. That is again what I would call overcorrection. There is a balance, and the balance is struck with the command for women to dress respectable. So you've got modesty and respectable apparel, and those two things create a very healthy balance for how a woman presents herself, particularly when she's worshiping the Lord in the presence of a mixed group, which is the church. Modesty keeps a woman from becoming or making herself uh, a sexual object to men or even to women, and Respectable apparel is meant to keep the woman from becoming distraction by overcorrecting and just showing up to church as a frumpy mess. It gives us a balance for apparel that allows women to dress appropriately and nicely and within their cultural standards, but more importantly, within God's standard for women. And what you'll notice today is there will be no rules made. I'm not going to say, hey women, don't wear this and do wear that and don't wear this and do wear that and... Because I don't want to create rules. And you'll see why we're not going to create rules. The only rules we're going to follow are things that this text says. And I don't want to project any sort of legalism on you. That how you dress is the only way that you can be right with God. So not to manage. So women, not to manage. And this, obviously, these principles apply to men too. But Let's be honest. Let's just be honest about the difference between men and women. Women are more beautiful than men, right? We all agree on that, okay? And the women might be going, I don't know. Well, if you don't agree with that, women, that's probably because you're attracted to men, right? And so that makes sense that you might not agree with it. But I don't think anyone's really going to disagree with the reality that women were created by God as more beautiful than men. I mean, men are far more maybe functional in a physical sense than women, but women were created more artistically, we'll say. Okay? And so, the beauty of a woman is what makes her more susceptible to becoming a means for sin in sexuality. And... This is why Paul's saying these things to women. So we could say that these truths apply to men too, but it's not nearly as big of a deal or problem in the church how the men are dressing compared to the women in the first century, particularly. So to not manage your appearance in this way is a sin. And the sin is a lack of self control, which Paul says here. So, respectable apparel is modesty and self-control. So without self-control, you'll veer into sin in the way that you present yourself. So self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, He enlightens your mind and your heart to cause you to put on clothes that will fulfill both respectable and modest apparel so that the church can fulfill its purpose in corporate gatherings, which is to exalt and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus. And if you're thinking, like, does God really care? Like, if I'm standing there in my closet on Sunday mornings, I'm looking at what I wear. Is God really that interested in what clothes I pick and put on? 100%. Absolutely, totally, without question, that is a moment when you need to be filled with the Spirit. (laughs) And you might be thinking, my pastor just told me that I have to be filled with the Spirit when when I'm picking up my outfit for the day? Absolutely. And not just on Sundays, every day. And that's all people, not just women. That's all people. So the, the filling of the Spirit is, is going to produce self-control, and that self-control is going to lead to women dressing themselves in respectable and modest forms. So Paul gives some specific examples of what women should not wear. And he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, in some sense, this is mostly a cultural thing. But also not. So, let me explain. Given the first century culture of uh, sexualized religion and worship being expressed primarily through uh, the sexuality of women, those women who led their either they're well, led their false religion in worship or the women who joined in this false worship, they would do their very best to present themselves or make themselves as sexually attractive as possible because to them, if they do that, that is faithfulness to their God. So that's worship to them. And we know that the sexualization of worship is from Satan, not from God. And we know that all false religions and false worship and false gods are, well, not real. So they're not from God in the sense that God wants us to worship them. And so they are naturally, because they're not of the Lord and they're of the enemy, they naturally are, uh, incorporate sinful behavior in that false worship, like sacrificing children and extremely perverted forms of sexuality and all kinds of other things. Drinking blood, stuff like that. So, it was normal to their culture. And Paul's fighting against that culture that considers this normal, hence his provision of specific possessions that women ought not to wear, like braided hair and gold pearls or costly attire. The thing is, these very things are still to this day considered attractive on women. So the question is, is it sin if a woman comes to church and she has gold or pearls or costly attire or braided hair? Well, it depends. So what does it depend on? Let me tell you what it doesn't depend on first. Do not think that it depends only on your heart and the intentions of your heart. Right? Because you could still come to church decked out in the gaudiest, most self-attracting apparel possible with the best of intentions to try to meet this standard of respectable apparel and modesty and that would still be sin. So what does it depend on then? It depends on how the woman adorns herself. The standard that we are trying to achieve is worship of God, right? That's the standard. If you're thinking, I have some standard in the way that I dress, don't think I have a standard in the way that I dress. That's the, wrong, that's the wrong perspective to have. Your standard is, I'm going to worship God. How should I dress? That's the difference. Not, how should I dress so that men don't look at me? How should I dress so that Pastor Mark doesn't tell me to go home and change? How should I dress so that I don't distract men? That's not how I want you thinking. How should I dress if I'm going to worship God? That's the most important aspect. If I want to exalt Christ in the way I present my body and myself, and my clothes are a way in which I present myself, how do I do that? That's a much healthier perspective. And anything that withdraws attention from God and onto you, whether man or woman, it misses the standard and it's sin and it creates chaos and disorder in the church as they gather for worship. And keep in mind, when I say chaos and disorder, it's not like someone comes in and they're slightly inappropriately dressed and the church all loses their mind and everyone freaks out and starts running in circles and screaming and yelling and pulling their hair out. Ah, chaos! That's not what I mean when I say chaos. It's, it's a slippery slope. It's, it's death by a thousand cuts, right? It's A little immodesty here and a little immodesty there and a little bit here and it becomes normalized and accepted and we we don't address it right away. And by not addressing it and dealing with it at its smallest point, it grows because sin loves to grow and it has plenty of growing fields in the hearts and minds of believers even to become a rampant problem in the church. And that will eventually create disorder and chaos. Women will, because of the way that they feel and are presented and the kind of attention they get from man, will get out of order and their structure in the church and their roles in the church and they will slip into and sneak into authoritative roles that they don't even, they weren't even trying to get into in the first place. It's just the natural product of sin as we don't deal with sin and sin becomes uh, more rampant as it grows. So this is really important that we kind of nip it in the bud, right? Like... Up front, so that these don't become actual problems in the church. So we get to this word, these words, braided hair. Now these are important words because I think that it requires a little explanation because this, these other list of accessories that Paul mentions are all in relation to braided hair. Okay, so braiding your hair on a Sunday morning isn't necessarily sin, okay? It's not what he's saying. It can be sin. It certainly can be, just as much as wearing the most modest apparel can be sin. You could come to church in the most modest outfit you can imagine, and you could do it with the intention of showing everybody in a selfish way how holy and godly you are, and that would still be sin. You wouldn't appear to be sinning, but your heart would be in sin, right? So we're not, that's why we're not trying to follow rules about physical appearances as much as we're trying to get to the heart of the issue so that women don't have to follow rules. So intention of the heart does play a role in how we present ourselves in worship, but braided hair in the first century and in the context of worship, which is what Paul means here, was more than just, you know, a woman wearing pigtails or having one long braid down the back of her, you know, down her back. It was more than that, way more than that in terms of uh, False worship of false gods is that through sexualized worship in the town of Ephesus and in other places as well. It was more than that. First century bra- braided hair in worship was woven and adorned with what do you think? Gold, pearls, and costly attire. So whether it's on your head or on your body, it's a matter of how you present it. Remember, women in worship were intentionally sexualized. So how a woman wore her hair was significantly important in their false worship as her hair revealed her proclivity toward being a sexual object of worship for men and women like a peacock flashing its colorful feathers, so also a woman would announce her availability for physical pleasure by how she wore her hair. Their braided hair was nothing like you typically see today. The idea of braided hair that Paul has in mind would be closer to how you would see a celebrity woman wear their hair on the red carpet, and and probably even greater or more... more, uh, more gaudy than even you see on a red carpet. They'd have their hair like intricately, intricately woven into like this massive display of physical feminine beauty. I mean, let's be honest, we we love the way like I have a very particular way in which I, I like my wife's hair, this way or that way. Like men care about the whole thing, the whole appearance. Right? And so like having this hair that's just as kind of big display to reveal I'm available and strewn with a variety of expensive accessories. And I actually, I have a picture because I want to give you a picture. And again, this is an extreme example. You can show the picture. (laughs) I've never seen anyone in church with hair like that. I never have. And that's why I use such like a big display. let's Let's all admit, that's gorgeous, right? There is nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Right, but if somebody walked in here on Sunday morning with their hair like that, like they they're, they better tell me like I had prom last night and didn't have a chance to change my hair. <laughs> that that might be the only acceptable response. Um, and again, regardless of the condition of the heart, this would be distracting. Okay? Now she could be completely, you know, the rest of herself could be completely dressed modestly and that would be fine. And, and I wouldn't look and say, oh, that's sin. Go take yourself home. And, you know, like, I'm just trying to give you an extreme example. Um, this is not the only thing that the women did to draw attention to themselves. There was plenty of other ways in which they did that. But the hair was a huge part of it because the hair was their announcement of how available and flexible and willing I am to do these perverted forms of worship. And so, Notice what's in the hair. Like, it looks like rope, but gold strands and pearls and diamonds, right? And like, that, I'm pausing because I need to be careful what I say. What this does is it gives you a visual understanding of how women would adorn their hair in the first century, okay? Some were worse than this, maybe some not nearly as, such a display as this. But it was done so to attract sexual attention from men in their false worship. And Paul wanted to ensure that this cultural standard did not creep into the church and pervert the gospel or our pursuit of God. So the question then is, what should women wear then? Right? What is appropriate for women to wear in corporate worship? And Paul just gave us some specific and literal examples of what not to wear. So you'd think that he would now give us some specific examples of what women can wear. But he doesn't. He says something else. Instead, he says in verse 10, that women should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Notice what Paul is doing. Man measures beauty on outward appearance, but the Lord measures beauty by the heart. If a woman wants to feel beautiful, she dresses beautifully to magnify her feminine beauty. But God teaches us that beauty is not measured in physical appearance, but by internal appearance, which only God can see. However, it can be seen by people when that internal beauty is revealed outwardly in a woman. And how is it revealed outwardly? Paul says, by good works. If you profess godliness, good works would be the product. That's the point. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he says, again, later in Matthew, that the same thing, that what is in us is going to come out of us. If godliness is in your heart, it will come out of your mouth. It will come out in the way you dress. It will come out in your behavior. It will come out in your attitude. It will come out in your actions. It will come out in your works. Everything that we do is a product of the way that we think. And the the way, the way we think is a condition of our heart. And this is why we press and push into you to be in the word all the time. So that you can think properly and therefore behave in a way that gives God the most glory and honor and will ultimately bring you the most satisfaction in life. So good works is the product of godliness in the heart of a woman. So the question then is, what good works? What good works does a woman show and what does it have to do in relation to the way that she's dressing or presenting herself and how she worships? This is all going to come back together, come back around into the roles of women in the church because the good works that Paul has in mind here is revealed in verse 11, and the good work of a godly woman is submissiveness. Women are to reveal their godly beauty, not their physical beauty because physical beauty is fleeting and physical beauty is subjective. But godliness is evident, sustainable, obvious, and objective. So women are to reveal their godly beauty through submission to their husbands or to their respected authority. And those who do not reveal this kind of godly beauty outwardly do not have the internal beauty of Christ inwardly. So they make up for it in a variety of ways. And this is what Paul's worried about in the first first century church. He's like, if there's not internal beauty, then you could put on all the appropriate clothes you want, but there's still a heart problem that we have to deal with. So I shouldn't have to give you a rule because your heart is what matters. And if your heart's right, it will show up in your good works, one of which is submissiveness. And with a submissive attitude and perspective toward your husband or toward your church leaders or toward others in the church, what you'll do is you'll enter into worship, into the physical location where you're worshiping, in a way that reveals your submissiveness, which is going to show up in your apparel just as much as everything else. Submission is a good work that is beautiful to God. And it should also be considered beautiful to the church because it reflects the submissive work of Christ to take the road to the cross in submission to the will of his authority, God the Father. That's 1 Corinthians 11.3. Submissiveness is opposite to what first century worship looked like for women in their culture, and that holds true today as well as like worldwide, um, women are taking on roles of authority within their home and taking on roles of authority within the church and it's disrupting orderly worship and leading people into death by false doctrines. And I say that, it sounds extreme, but women leading the church is leading the church into death via false doctrines. And I say that because A woman leading the church is out of order from God's structure for the church. And her leading the church, or as Paul says in verse 11, having authority over men, is itself a false doctrine. Because the doctrine of ecclesiology, the the study of the church, or the doctrines of the church, which include... Uh, male and female roles and authority in the church and order and structure and things like that in the church require male leadership and female submission. And as much as, you know, Ephesians 5.21, everyone submits to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's true too, but that's more of an attitude than a, where where in that text, Paul is talking about the the condition of our heart and how we react and relate to one another in Christ. Whereas in the context here for Timothy, he's talking about the order and the structure and the function of the church. These are different contexts Okay, So, so it's, it's really important because if a woman is leading the church, the premise of her ministry is standing on a false doctrine. So a female pastor could stand at a pulpit and preach a sermon and she could say true things like, Jesus is Lord. Jesus died for your sins. The Bible is true. I mean, she could say things that are true that you would agree with, but so would Satan. Every, I'm not saying all women are false preachers, um, but their preaching and holding a position in in the church or an office of elder or pastor is inappropriate to her role and to the structure and order of the church. And so her ministry, even if she says things that are true, doesn't make her ministry true because everything she teaches is going to lead to not sound doctrine because the premise of her ministry is based on false doctrine. So, and we, and we see this showing up all over because if you consider most churches that have women taking on roles they shouldn't take, what you'll notice is that a majority of those churches also have started to allow other things to become acceptable in their church. Like, not only do we allow a female to be a pastor, but we allow a homosexual female to be a pastor. And, and, and it, like I said before, it's a slippery slope. You start letting bad doctrine into the church and not practicing biblical sound doctrine, then what's gonna happen is you're gonna start sliding down a path that gets worse and worse and worse, and becomes more and more sinful. And you cannot tell me that a church like that brings honor and glory to God. At least not through righteousness. Okay. If you're at all feeling like uh, this is really demoralizing to women, I hope you don't, because it's not. And if I'm giving that impression, then I'm wrong, because I don't intend to do that. But... Uh, and we're going to get to, just in a second here, we're almost done, but we're going to get to why this is so important right now, okay? Because if, as, as a woman, what's going to happen right now is one of two things, maybe other things too, but I'm just thinking primarily of one of two things. One, you're going to go, oh. This is so glorious. I love God's word. I love being taught God's word, and I want to fill my God-given role as a woman and honor Jesus the best that I can in the most appropriate way. I can. I want to dress modestly and appropriately within the standards of our culture, but more importantly, within God's standard. I don't want to be distraction to worship, and I want to fill my role appropriately. And I want to be submissive to my husband, and I want to be submissive to my church leaders, my elders, and my pastors, and and I want to be submissive to the people I'm supposed to be submissive to. And I want, I want to present myself in all these ways that bring Jesus so much, so much honor. Okay, that could be one perspective. I hope every single woman in this church is, like, thinking that. What I don't want you thinking is, like, I already got this figured out. Because we all don't have everything figured out. So, so, at best, I want you to have that, like, oh, I really want to fulfill this the best I can. Another perspective could be that there could be this thought in your mind of, like, Oh, this is so oppressive. You know, kind of like a, this is, this is not how women should be treated and kind of have that attitude of like, you know, like repel, you repel this doctrine a little bit. I want to tell you why, if you think that, or if anybody thinks that, why that's happening. That's pride. That is pride. That's pride in the heart. And that's the product of the fall. This is what God told Eve. That's the problem, is pride is going to get in the way and pride is going to tell you, no, women shouldn't be pushed down. I'm not saying women should be pushed down. Women shouldn't be suppressed. I'm not saying women should be suppressed. So if there is any part of you that is like angsty against this, you're like, mm, I don't like this, just recognize for a moment, that's pride. That's sin. That's the flesh saying, don't let that man tell you how to be a woman. And I would say, I agree. I agree. You shouldn't let this man tell you how to be a woman. You should let God tell you how to be a woman. And so that is, like, so if there is in any of you, and I'm not, I don't want you to feel bad if you're feeling like, oh, he's right, he just pinned me down, I am feeling pride. I don't want you to feel like, Mark's attacking me. I want you to go, like, okay, Lord, I've got pride in my heart, you've got to kill it. You've got to kill it. If Mark's wrong, at least uh, kill the pride and then in my humility, show me what's right. You at least have to kill the pride because we all agree and know that pride is sin. So, I, that's a disclaimer. And I've learned over the years that I used, I used to give a lot of disclaimers, guys. I'm way better at it now. But I thought that's an important disclaimer before I say this. Listen, women and men. Submissiveness requires quietness because submissiveness assumes a lowly position and a gentle disposition and if being quiet being a, a quiet gentle and lowly position as a woman offends you then i would encourage you to consider jesus who says in matthew 29 matthew 11:29 i am gentle and lowly in heart. Women, what a great joy that the Lord has given you that you get to be the ones who get to express the character and nature and beauty and magnificence and glory of Jesus Christ by being the ones who reflect the awesome nature of his lowly and gentle and submissive heart. That is beautiful. Better than any female body, better than any form of sexuality, better than any braided hair strewn with pearls and gold and whatever, better than any other display of female beauty is the beauty of a woman who quietly and gently and lowly submits. That brings incredible glory to God. That does not destroy a woman's rights. It does not destroy a woman's nature or character. It uplifts them and holds them up because it magnifies Christ and not the woman. So submissiveness, I'm going to say another tough one. So hold on. And I I say tough, but when I say tough, I mean glorious truth. Submissiveness carries with it an appeal for women to be unnoticed. Unnoticed. Okay. Okay. I think, like, that might be the word right there that might cause someone to go, okay, that's too far. Unnoticed. So I'm like a church mouse in the corner. I'm just to shut up and sit down and do nothing and be a little plaything thing for what it, to do whatever somebody tells you because I've got to submit and I've got to sit in the corner. i got to shut up and I've got to be unnoticed and quiet. And it's not the message that Paul is delivering. Listen to what I mean by when I say unnoticed. Unnoticed does not mean not cared for. The Bible is filled with commands for how the church should care for women, especially widows. Unnoticed does not mean not considered. And unnoticed does not mean not seen. I mean unnoticed in the sense that her submission to her husband and to her elders and to her Savior removes any notion that her presence Draws attention to her physical beauty as a means to distract from godly worship, but instead she is unnoticed because when men and women look at the submissive, godly woman, her beauty is not hers. Her beauty is the beauty of Jesus. So she is unnoticed and Christ is noticed and exalted, and glorified, and magnified, and satisfied. Think about the most godly woman you've ever known in your life. Can you think of one? I can. Would you dare, dare sexualize that woman? You know you wouldn't. Because her godliness is strong enough and beautiful enough... And so Christ like enough that to think of sexualizing her feels like you're sexualizing Jesus and it offends your soul if you're a believer. That I want every woman in this church to destroy that possibility for every man in this church because you're so Christ centered, so biblically saturated, so Jesus oriented so much like Jesus that when I look at you when we look at you we don't see you I mean we see you we know your name and we care about you and you as a person we all know that but like we look at you and we just be like I I can't even think about sin and that person because I just see Christ pouring out of them they're so godly I, I have no opportunity to sin in my mind when it comes to that woman every woman should strive for that And it begins with the heart and it shows up in submissive nature as you reveal the gentle and lowly and quiet and almost unnoticed nature of Christ in the church which allows men in terms of the order and structure of the church when women fall into that position as they're intended to it allows men to climb into theirs. And that truth holds true in your home as well. This is why I do not want to set any kind of rules or laws concerning how women dress because if her heart and her mind is Christ-centered, spirit-saturated, God-glorifying and biblically based, then she doesn't need rules. Because she has the Spirit of Christ in her who will manifest the majesty of Christ in her ability and willingness and obedience to submit to her proper authorities so that the church can worship in peace and in order as God intends and women can find their truest experience of joy in Christ as they willingly and joyfully and respectfully and gently and quietly submit that will produce joy peace and glory and the only thing standing in the way is pride let's pray father you you love you love your church You love the men and you love the women and you love them just the same. There is no distinction in our nature. We're all created in your image and likeness and yet there is a distinction in that you created us male and female and so there's a difference and we struggle to navigate those differences because our sin nature wants to pervert your creation. And so we submit and we try and want to submit to your order for worship in a way that brings you the most glory and honor. And so we need you and depend on you to cause the women in our church to submit, to present themselves in a glorious Christ-like manner, a gentleness and lowliness and quietness, with the godliness in, in their heart that shows up in the good works of their Their service to you, King Jesus. And so, Lord, it's really, really, really hard for women to do that when they're not loved well by men. And we know not being loved well by men is not an excuse for their sin, but that is a significant truth that men need to hear too. So remind the men, Lord, to love their wives well to love the women well, to love them like Christ loves them and create in the church order and structure that produces vertical worship and magnifies your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.